It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. You're listening to Theater in College Hoops. I am Subi. I am going solo today, although we do have a wonderful guest. A lot of fun chatting with this individual. He is on the coaching staff of one of the hottest teams in the entire country and a team that you're probably going to want to get familiar with, excuse me, before March. So not totally alone, but no Taylor today. Uh, We are brought to you by Belly Up Media. Go download, subscribe, rate, and review us on whichever device you use. Your college hooper of the day, I went with Fletcher McGee from Wofford, the sharpshooter. That's right. Fletcher McGee out of Wofford and the SoCon. That should be a little hint as to who we are chatting with, or at least what team is being represented here today. So that's two hints. They're red hot and they're out of the SoCon. But Fletcher McGee, man, I don't know if you guys remember this kid. He was a shooter. He was lethal from three and just a wonderful, wonderful player. He was one of those guys where when the SoCon tournament came around, he would show up and perform his best. And Wofford was lucky to have him. Wofford had a few fun years uh, with Fletcher McGee. So I had to shout him out and tie it in with the SoCon. Check out the website at theaterandcollegehoops.com and make sure to follow me at CBB Theater to find out where the feat is. You should also follow Taylor at Taylor Dammel. Let's open the curtains. got a really really fun episode for you today i hope you enjoy it we sit down with mitch cole associate head coach from samford 17 straight wins for the samford bulldogs if you don't know you better get to know these guys have not lost 
since the first two games of the season. So game one, if you recall, was Purdue. And we get into that a little bit. We also talk about Dallas Graziani taking the tip against Zach Eady. There's a funny story behind that, but it was also purposeful. They then lost to VCU following that. And since it's been nothing but W's. So this was a lot of fun chatting with Mitch. He has a, a very detailed background. He's been around the block multiple times. He's been at Texas A&M. And if you guys remember from 2015, 2016, that incredible comeback win in the tournament against UNI. Yeah, Mitch Cole was on that on that coaching staff. He was on that bench. Talk a little Alex Caruso, Daniel House. And of course, what is working so well for Samford? We get into a little personnel, but Mitch, just an all-around terrific, terrific dude who knows ball. And I think the most impressive part of the interview for me, and you'll hear it, and this isn't a spoiler, but the most impressive part was him saying how much he just loves it. He doesn't want to be a famous coach. He just wants to be a coach. And he'll dive into that. He will explain that. But it was a lot of fun sitting down with him, talking Sanford ball, and really highlighting one of the better mid-majors, if not the, the best mid-major, depending on how you want to label and define mid-majors. Uh, Sanford is, is rolling right now. And they are a tough team. They are in an impressive SOCON that has produced teams that upset household names. We saw it with Furman literally last year. Chattanooga almost pulled one off against Illinois a couple of years back before Lamont Paris went to South Carolina. UNCG and West Miller teams were always impressive. At Sioux, Eastern Tennessee State, before Steve Forbes went to Wake Forest, they were always a tough out. The SOCON is is a conference full of great players, great coaches, and they're dangerous. It's a dangerous, dangerous conference. So this was a lot of fun, and I'm glad we were able to get and uh, get Mitch Cole and sit down with him to talk about what a tremendous season the Sanford Bulldogs are having. Before we get to that interview, though, there were a few items that I wanted to touch on. There have been some firings in college basketball, so let's start there first and foremost. Tony Stubblefield out at DePaul. This is in my backyard. I live about a mile, if that, from DePaul's campus. And mid-season, my first thought was this is mid-season. A mid-season college basketball coaching change usually only happens when something off-court occurs. Tony Stubblefield, it had to happen. And I've 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 made fun of this. I think it's funny. But when I was walking past DePaul, there was a poster of Tony Stubblefield and I guess his nickname or moniker is chairman of the clipboard. Uh, but in all seriousness, it was just a painfully disappointing tenure for Stubblefield in Lincoln Park. Listen to this from John Fanta. Outside of the loss to Georgetown, DePaul's average margin of defeat in the other six Big East games was 28. That's, of course, this season. The Blue Demons showed zero signs of progress or upside and have been non-competitive. That is very true. We saw it most recently against Providence. Midseason changes are not common, but the recipe was there for this. And that's correct. Now, looking forward, who could they or who do I want them to target? There are some names out there, and I think the popular one is Will Wade. And I am all for that. I would love Will Wade to come here and coach DePaul. And Will Wade's already leaning into the villain the good villain, right? 
he's leaning into that. And there is like a stone store away from DePaul's campus is where John Dillinger got shot. Okay. So what is this insane corollary I'm making? I want Will Wade to come here and be DePaul's John Dillinger. All right. Uh, I want him to be that maverick. I want him to resurrect uh, this program. And I think it'd be a lot of fun. And I said in the preseason that the Big East, the coaches are more compelling than the players. I think I'm still correct on that. That was without Will Wade. Wait till you introduce him, introduce a little chaos. At the very least, DePaul needs a jolt of energy. And we've seen immediate impact coaching guys. Okay. Now, Will Wade down at McNeese State is doing a tremendous job. He weathered a lot of issues in the first couple games. But the Big East is a different animal. We know that. We understand that, of course. But Will Wade would be 10 toes deep. He would do a tremendous job raising NIL funds, which I believe DePaul is dead last in the Big East. That's not shocking whatsoever. But there'd be a resurgence. And I said this with Rick Patino, and Rick Patino has a far better resume than almost anyone that has patrolled a sideline in college basketball, but certainly will Wade. But when he went to St. John's, I said, the juice is back at the very least. Now, I don't know if this is going to result in wins. I don't know if it's going to result in a tournament berth, but the juice is back. And you bring in will Wade. The juice would be back for DePaul. You're in a pro sports town though. That's the tough part. Recruiting wise, you're in a great area, Chicago, Indiana's right next door the Midwest, but this is a pro town. They, I, I can tell you that folks don't care about the ball right now. And it's because they're terrible, but they also care more about the likes of the Blackhawks, Bulls, Bears, White Sox, Cubs. That's what I would say. But Tony Stubblefield dismissed midseason again, which is, I mean, it's shocking, but it's really not shocking based on the results that were, uh, were taking place there few other items I want to talk about from this past weekend, and I'll try and go rapid fire here. First, FAU. They're going to get clipped. There was a time a couple weeks ago where I said FAU could either go to the Elite Eight, Final Four, or they can lose in, in the round of 64. I'm f- far more leaning towards losing in the round of 64. These guys, it doesn't seem like they care about the regular season. They had an ugly, their first halves have just been ugly. They have not been inspired whatsoever. And I think they're developing and forming bad habits. And when you, they just won their last game in overtime. But when you get to the NCAA tournament, you don't have the pressure that will be there in March. And they're used to it. They know about this pressure. They beat an incredible Tennessee team last year with pressure. They made that amazing run. But here in January, they're not facing much pressure going down into the half. And the thing is, this upcoming year, they're going to be the hunted. This is a team coming off of a Final Four, Bears repeating. So the dynamics have changed from last year's uh, NCAA tournament run. If you go into half down last year, FAU, you say, oh, they're the plucky underdogs. Maybe they can pull this off. There's not a ton of pressure. You go in as the favorite. You go in as a top dog, as a guy that just went to the the Final Four and you're down at half in the in the tournament, it's a different set of circumstances. And they're developing bad habits. They're playing with fire. They do not look good whatsoever. So I, I know the casual conversation 
And the easy conversation is, well, they beat Arizona. Well, they've also lost to a bunch of other teams. They've uh, bad teams. They played poorly recently. And also, by the way, they did lose to Illinois. So while that Arizona win looks great, they lost to a similar caliber team also. So I'm, again, the, the casual conversation I think is going to be, can they make the final four or the elite eight, or will they lose in the round of 64? I don't see this team as a second weekend team at the moment. So there's a lot of things that Dusty May and FAU need to clean up. Another item I wanted to talk about, Michigan State, Maryland. I woke up Sunday morning and I said, you know what? I'm going to go with Maryland. I'm going to go with Kevin Willard. I'm going to place my faith in Jameer Young, Dante Scott, Julian Reese. And Julian Reese is an absolute dog down low. But that was foolish. And Maryland played a very close game. They had a chance to win it. They had the ball in the final possession. Jameer Young turned it over. Credit to, to Holloway for, for picking his pocket. He had him He had him locked up the last five minutes. But at a higher level, as that game was going on, and especially in the first half when Michigan State was making those runs and going up like 12, I said to myself, what the hell was I thinking? What are you doing? Why are you betting against a Tom Izzo Michigan State team with their backs against the wall? If you really take a step back and look at it, those are two 11 and 7 teams coming into that game. That's a must win for both teams. And you went with Kevin Willard and, and Maryland. So I'm kind of, I'm kind of pissed at myself. I'm telling myself to take a lap. I might do that after this episode because why in the world, maybe it was because I just woke up. Eyes were crusty. Brain was soup. Who knows? But why in the world would you go against Tom Izzo in that situation in essentially a must win? Maryland season's on life support outside of the Big Ten tournament, I would say. Michigan State, on the other hand, maybe this is going to propel them. Who knows? Michigan State with a big one, though. Nevada lost to Wyoming. After their second straight loss, I said, it's not sweet in the Mountain West for Nevada right now. And they need to, every team, this is a this is something for every team. You need to take care of business. What that means is I understand it's a very competitive league. But one, uh, if you have a lead, you can't give it up in, in a game. Right, if if it's Boise State SDSU and SDSU's up twelve, you cannot give up that lead. You have to see that game through. And number two, you have to take advantage of the 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 seller of the Mountain West. So that dovetails into Nevada losing to Wyoming. They had lost two straight. They have Colorado State and New Mexico after this. And I said, looking at the schedule, entering that Wyoming game, and so the schedule would have been Wyoming, Colorado State, New Mexico. I said, man, Nevada has just lost their last two. They could very well lose two of their next three. And that was referencing the Rams and the Lobos. I did not take into account the fact that Wyoming would beat them, but it happened. And right now, Nevada is, is losing some air. They're, they're treading water, and it doesn't look great. And it's tough in this league right now. It's very, very tough. So a little disappointed with Nevada. I think Jared Lucas is a tremendous player, but losing that Wyoming game, it could have some serious, serious impacts uh, on their tournament chances. And like I said, they got Colorado State ranked, New Mexico ranked, best of luck. Zvovomir Ivisevich for Kentucky. What a debut. This guy is just a freak. 
came out, shot lights out, facilitating, rebounding. He was electric. And I think it's so cool that he's on a team like Kentucky where I feel like we haven't we, – the last couple of years, we just haven't seen these guys that take the entire country by storm. Like I haven't seen a Jamal Murray. I haven't seen a De'Aaron Fox. I haven't seen a John Wall, DeMarcus Cousins what, in what feels like a couple seasons now, right? But here comes Avicevic, and he was the talk of the town. He was the water cooler talk for – the early window slate or maybe the mid mid slate games when they were just demolishing, demolishing Georgia. So that was really cool. I'm glad Kentucky is back. They look great. I think it's fair. If you want to say that they're better than Tennessee, I would personally disagree, but it would not shock me if depending on how the bracket plays out, if both Kentucky and, and Tennessee are in Glendale, man, they are, they are battle tested. They are tremendous. And by the way, circle your calendars. I believe they play February 3rd. That is going to be theater. Arizona, they are back in first place in the Pac-12. Hat tip to Utah for getting it done against Oregon. Arizona played the LA schools over this past weekend. And truth be told, they did not look that great. Okay? They did not look that great. I thought they looked super average against USC. And they were terrible. Terrible for about, mm, let's say, 25 game minutes against UCLA. Absolutely god-awful. Down 19 to UCLA. A UCLA team that I said had quit. Last couple games, it doesn't look like they've quit, but uh, you can't be getting down 19 to UCLA. So that was super disappointing. What was great, though, to see is that Arizona got it out of the mud. They battled back. It wasn't one of these fake gas comebacks, which I've been accustomed to. When they came back and they scratched and they clawed, they actually kept their foot on the gas and they ended up winning that ball game. So kudos for getting it out of the mud. I wasn't impressed with the uh, the USC game, but USC, that might be one of the worst rosters, Trojan rosters I've seen in about 10 years there. Uh, and I love you, Chris Capco. You're our guy. But it, it, it's just been an abysmal, rough, rough season in Troy. Um, but UCLA, what a weekend for them. They rally from 15 down in Tempe to win that game against ASU. Saturday, they're up 19. They end up losing that game. Arizona now travels to Corvallis on Thursday, and they should they should take care of business against the Beavers. And then big old, big old matchup, 4.30 Central Time on Fox in Eugene, which has been a house of horrors kind of for, for Arizona. I think it was last year, like the first or second play of the game and Folly Dante came down and absolutely posterized Kirk Creesa. So let's see if Arizona with first place on the line in a very difficult environment can get it out of the mud. They're not, they're not running Oregon, who has just lost two straight and is probably pissed off. They're not going to blow them out of the water. This is going to be a very physical and tough game. Arizona got it out of the mud at home with their crowd behind them. Can they do it in Eugene? I would encourage them not to get down 19 on the road. UCF, what a shooting performance against Houston. They were shooting Midwestern temperatures. I'm talking like 9-10%. They were atrocious but i suppose that's what happens when you do the horns down and you somehow beat kansas 
I always say life has a way of evening itself out. I don't know if it's necessarily karma, but life has a way of evening you out. All right. And so UCF, where everyone was in their corner, basically saying, yeah, Texas is soft. Do the horns down. You beat Kansas. We don't like the big dogs in Kansas. Good for UCF. Well, life changes quickly, huh? Because you just shot like nine and 10% or whatever it was in the first half. Like you had 14 points at the under 16 timeout in the, in the entire game in the second half. And so now we're all making fun of you for that. So ups and downs here for UCF, South Carolina. I'm going to revisit what I said very early in the season after South Carolina beat GCU. I said, Lamont Paris is doing a good job riding the ship. Let's see how they do against Clemson. And then I'll make a decision about how bought in I am on them. They lost to Clemson, but that was on the road in a rivalry game. And they were super competitive. And I was pretty much in on Lamont Paris and the Gamecocks. I do think they're going to the NCAA tournament, which is another thing that I had said sometime right before Thanksgiving, it might've been, but I want to shout them out because they smacked up Arkansas in Bud Walton. How many of you raise your hands class? How many of you had the Gamecocks winning in Bud Walton back in the off season or whenever the schedule came out? If you raise your hands, you're a liar. Nobody had South Carolina beating this Arkansas team on the road. Credit to them. Texas, they're going to be a team that is in and out of the top 25. I am convinced they beat Baylor in thrilling fashion. Appalling defense from Baylor on that last drive from Tyrese Hunter. They just kept backing up, backing up, backing up. You got to stop the ball or the man. One of those can get by you, not both. Uh, And I don't necessarily know if Tyrese Hunter got by him, but you just offered no resistance. So Texas, I know they're going to be in and out of the top 25. They haven't looked good, but... They have some wins, nothing really to write home about until this Baylor game. So they were hovering at 25 last week, dropped out. Uh, They're going to be checking in and out, folks. That's what Texas is going to be. And I was wrong about them. I said Texas was going to rise, and I said Alabama was going to rise from wherever they were preseason, which I think was 20, 21, 22. That has not happened and is not coming to fruition right now. So I was wrong about that. Triple overtime game between Creighton and Seton Hall. What a way to start the day, man. What a way to set the tone. Thrilling, thrilling finish. Credit to Seton Hall. I thought they battled their tails off, to be fair. I think they kind of got jobbed, especially when they came up with a turnover and they passed it to another Seton Hall guy for a layup. But the ref called a foul, putting him at the line. And it was not a foul right? You have to let that go, but it favored and it benefited Creighton who Creighton scares me a little bit just with their late game execution. Fact of the matter is that they could not get the ball inbounds three separate times. One was a potential Baylor Shireman travel. That's up for dispute, up for debate, but they had to call a timeout. That's not getting the ball in successfully. They had to call another timeout and then I think they got a five-second violation or or they uh, they turned it over on that play that was, you know, officiated improperly. So, and then I think they fouled a three-point shooter up four. Man, but it was a crazy game and tons of credit to Ryan Kalkbrenner. That dude is one of the toughest MFers out there. For four years, I've seen Ryan Kalkbrenner, and it seems like 10 or 15, but I've seen for years now Ryan Kalkbrenner get beat up, scratched, bruised, hit, 
And he just shakes it off and he keeps playing to the best of his ability. He's gone through a season ending knee injury, but Ryan Kalkbrenner is also one of those guys where just because he's huge, he's probably not getting as many calls as he should, but he is just nose to the grindstone tough as hell. And I think Creighton fans should appreciate everything that he's brought to this program because he took one in the chops. He took a bad one in the jaw, moved his mouth around a little bit, readjusted, and he finished with an incredible stat line. So credit to Ryan Kalkbrenner. I think he's one of the best Blue Jays in recent memory. Last but not least in the Big East, this is the first bit of real adversity for St. John's. Okay. I'm not talking about some losses in November and December. That doesn't count as real adversity. You're in the shit of it now. Rick Pitino knows that. I don't know if his players know that because they're fighting for a berth. Okay. They might be sweating on the bubble. Depends on who, which bracketologist you look at. They're on, I think they're on the good side of the bubble, but two straight losses now is, is going to introduce some adversity. You get blown out by Seton Hall play very tough against Marquette, but cannot finish the job. So now you say to yourself, you can't be losing three straight, four straight, which is very easy to do in the Big East, another competitive conference. I'm very, very curious to see how St. John's responds to this two-game losing streak. Because if they nip it in the bud, everything's going to be all right. But if they lose another, things could turn sour quickly. And we're going to see what Rick Pitino can do with this particular group of individuals. He's already done a tremendous job in my eyes, but there's a whole second half to the season that needs to be completed. Those were a few of my takeaways from this past weekend, but without further ado, I want to go ahead and get to this interview with coach Mitch Cole from Sanford University. Like I said, can't thank him enough for jumping on. It was a lot of fun. Please enjoy this interview with Mitch Cole from Sanford University. All right, we are so pleased to welcome on to Theater and College Hoops the 2021 Southern Athletic Association Coach of the Year, a man who helped develop NBA household names such as Alex Caruso and Daniel House. He's now serving as associate head coach at the red-hot Sanford Bulldogs. I'm talking 17 straight. We got Mitch Cole joining us today. Mitch, how are you? I'm great. I appreciate you having me on. Looking forward to it. I appreciate you joining us, Mitch. You have been through an amazing journey in college basketball, uh, different staffs, different players like I had mentioned, and now you're here at Samford. I already referenced the 17-game win streak. You just come off of a win against Mercer. Man, how is it feeling right now on campus, in the locker room, in the building? Tell us all about this win streak. It's an exciting time. I tell you what, you know, you win 17 straight, and it's uh... – it's great for the fans. It's great for the program, the notoriety and all that. But as a coach, you're just, you know, you're always looking over your shoulder going, okay, man, when is this thing going to, you know, fall apart? But no, we've got a great group and a great community. They love basketball here. Our, our support staff, our, um, our president, our athletic director, everybody's aligned. Our head coach is unbelievable. So uh, got good players, man. When all that comes together, it's magic. So we're excited. Well, I hope you keep that magic rolling. We will get more into this year's Samford team and the win streak. And I want to pick your brain a little bit about what's contributing to that. But before we do that, Mitch, I think it's very important for our audience to get a better understanding of who you are as a basketball coach and where you come from and your journey. 
Uh, I was doing a bit of research, and it's pretty detailed and it's pretty lengthy, Mitch. This this road that, means that I'm you've old. traveled. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it means you're accomplished. Okay, I think it means you're accomplished. So, Mitch, if you can do your best to take us back to the start of how you broke into coaching, the different stops, and how you ended up at Samford, I think that'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, from New Orleans, Louisiana, played in high school and then played in college out in Montana. So took a different route. No real coaching pedigree, just started, you know, finding people that knew the game and, and trying to latch on to them. Um, my first opportunity after college was at Southeastern Louisiana University, about 50 miles outside of New Orleans. I had one year there and then two years as a grad assistant at Auburn. Uh, two great years. Awesome place. Uh, that was in the early 90s and then uh, was fortunate to jump on at Birmingham Southern, a small school here in Birmingham with a Hall of Fame coach named Dwayne Rebol. He had just won two national championships at the NAI level, small college. And um, man, what a winner. Great uh, guy. Awesome program builder and just played a unique style that was uh, fun to coach. I think for the players, fun to play in. And um, at that point is where I met Bucky McMillan, our head coach here. He was a player for us back then. So what and year was so, this again? This was uh, I was at Birmingham Southern starting in 95. OK, that's when you first met Bucky McMillan, the current head coach. At first Sanford. met Bucky when he was in seventh grade. He came to our basketball camps and we started doing uh, individual workouts. And he he was this little scrawny kid that wanted to be a college player. And I, I said, uh I don't know about that, but we'll do some we'll do some player development and have some fun and teach you how to shoot, dribble, pass. And boy, you talk about an incredibly hard worker and diligent guy. So um, he was he played for us. He eventually played for us at Birmingham Southern and um, had a very good career uh, when the school was Division One. He he was right in the middle of all that. So um, so yeah. So so we we did that for. I don't know, 11 years. I became the head coach at Birmingham Southern for five years. Had an opportunity to go to Texas A&M with Billy Kennedy after that. Um, we had some incredible seasons there as well with a Sweet 16 appearance. And then uh, took a job at Arkansas Little Rock with a good friend of mine, Wes Flanagan, who's now an assistant coach at Ole Miss, but was at Auburn for years. I actually coached him as well when he was at Auburn as a player. So I've got this... Uh, this ability to uh, coach players and then work for them eventually. So that's, that's kind of how it works for me. Uh, then I was the head coach at a little school called Barry college in the mountains of uh, Rome, Georgia for three years before coming to Sanford here for the last uh, two and a half seasons. So it's been 32 years. It's been great. Basketball has taken me all over the world and I wouldn't trade it for anything. It's been awesome. That is amazing. That is amazing. So we, you talk about, Billy Kennedy, uh, I, we'll, we'll, we'll get to him a little bit later. And then the Flanagan family. So you coached Wes. Is it crazy to see Alan contributing at a high level as well, Wes's son? Oh, it's great to see it, man. We were at Little Rock, and um, he was a high school kid and skinny and just sort of, you know, getting his, getting his game right. But I, eventually I knew his work ethic, just like his dad would take over, and he'd become an incredible player. So – uh, it's a special family. I'll always uh, have a great relationship with them, but it's great to see what he's doing, certainly, at Ole Miss. I'll tell you what, also in unpacking your answer, Mitch, it seems like your tentacles have been all around not only the Southeast, but Alabama specifically. You were a GA at Auburn. 
you know, you had, you, you were in Hammond. I think that's where Southeast Louisiana right. is. Correct. Right. right. But also like you're at uh, Samford now, uh, it, it kind of seems like you run the Southeast with an iron fish there, Mitch. <laughs> we've been here a while. We, we just haven't lived in Mississippi yet, but we've been everywhere else. So, uh, yeah, I've got a daughter at University of Georgia, a son at Auburn, another son here in high school. So, yeah, we, we're Southeast people, man. We, we roll like that. But certainly took a detour up to Montana in college. So that was got a taste of the Northwest there. So that was, yeah. it was great. Can you tell me a little bit about that culture shock? Because I remember, or just that transition, because I had Ryan Anderson on the podcast a few years ago, uh, assistant coach at Xavier. He went to BC, great player, also played at Arizona, but he went to BC and I think he's from Southern California. And so I asked him, I was like, hey man, you know, when you first got to campus, were you okay with all the, the weather, et cetera? I mean, how does someone from New Orleans make it up to Montana and adjust? incredible journey it was just uh i you know just i'd go anywhere to play college basketball and i had an opportunity there got a scholarship at montana state billings and uh the conference we played in was alaska anchorage alaska fairbanks chaminade out of hawaii seattle pacific all these schools so i was hey what a great chance to travel get around play a high level of college basketball and so we we did it and it was it was a good few years yeah we enjoyed it Talked a little Southeast, talked a little Northwest, but there was a special stop in the Southwest, and that is at Texas A&M. And I want to get your feedback and, and your thoughts on that Sweet 16 run. Mitch, you know where I got to start, and that is the round of 32 game against Northern <laughs> Iowa. Of course. Truly one of the greatest games the NCAA tournament has ever seen. I just want you to... Paint the picture, any stories. I'm going to give you full autonomy here. But let me first start with this. Down 12 with 43 seconds left. You can be honest here. 44 seconds left. Please be honest with me. Uh, This is an open space. Did you think it was over? (laughs) Well, I tell you what, not only did we think it was somewhat over, but our fans, my wife, everybody, I think, thought it was over. Uh, Admon Gilder's parents, I think, left the building at that point. But literally we were thinking, Hey, let's get our walk-ons in. let's let them ex- experience this for a minute. And, um, all of a sudden we hit a three and then we get a steal and then we hit another three and, and you start looking up and Hey, okay, maybe, but the clock's ticking. We're still six down. Uh, Alex Caruso gets a steal, dumps it off. Daniel house hits a three on an out of bounds play. And before you know it, uh, we had tied the game, and instead of going pick up on the press, you see us all going, get back, get back, get back. The game's tied. And uh, so I'm just telling you, that was one of the most incredible experiences I've ever had. It, it, I think people that followed that, that were coaches, it kind of changed the way they look at, quote, blowouts, because you are never out of that game within reason. But that was probably one of the biggest comebacks ever, I think. And um, with that short of time and, and down with that deficit. So it was surreal. We got off the court and we're just going, did we actually win that game? I have no idea how we did it. You know, it was kind of divine intervention at times, but, you know, it, it was it was a pretty cool experience. So you talk about having to quickly pivot, not only from your defensive approach, right? Because I get it. With 44 seconds left, you're just pressing the hell out of them and you're so used to doing it. You kind of have to say, Oh, wait, Nope, don't fail. Don't do anything. Right. Let them get this one second shot off, but also just your mindset. You go from, all right, let's potentially get the walk-ons into experience this, but then 
Mitch, as you head into overtime, I mean, how confident are you feeling at that point? At that point, yeah, we we felt like, okay, I think we can win this game. We were playing poorly. They were playing great. Um, but we one thing that people don't realize about that game is we did not foul. We didn't put them at the free throw line. It was all traps and just trying to get them close to the baseline and running through the passes. And they kept catching the ball close to the baseline. And so whenever that happens, you can gamble a little bit. People don't want to necessarily throw it deep on you at that point in the game. So if you come up and bring all five up, you can get some steals. But yeah, once overtime hit, the, the talent took over, and the you know Alex Caruso, Jalen Jones, all these guys that we had on that team just just took over, and it was it was great to see. It almost feels like it being an elimination game, obviously a postseason tournament game, played in your favor as opposed to UNI's favor. Because if this was a game maybe in January or February. I don't know if the the dogs are still on as much as they are Alex Caruso and and the whole team saying I don't want my season to end. Right. Uh, so that was that was fascinating. What was the post game locker room like? It's hard to even remember. They, we, we were just going crazy in there. I mean, all our fans, the ones that stayed, actually were uh, were all around the top. And as we walked out of the build, uh, out of the tunnel, we're just everybody's just going crazy. We couldn't believe it. And um, as a coach, you just sit back and take a breather and you look at each other and go, can you believe that? And Billy managed that game so well. And it was just it was such a good thing for Texas A&M basketball at that point, too. We had just won the SEC championship uh, regular season, but lost to Kentucky in the SEC tournament in overtime. Jamal Murray just went crazy. And it was just what a what a great game. There's probably you know, 15,000 Kentucky fans and maybe a thousand Texas A&M fans, but that, that game was incredible. So just high level basketball uh, all the way around. And and what a special thing to remember as a college basketball coach. Yeah. Last, last I'll touch on this before we pivot to Sanford, but Mitch, when, when you win that game, right. And you talk about the emotions that are going through you right after I've talked to coaches, and staff that have been in the NCAA tournament and and they basically say, all right, we got to switch it on now to next week. Right. And luckily you had a, an entire, I say entire, but a few days to prep for uh sweet 16. How, how, how quickly did you have to get back into scouting mode and coaching mode after that historic win against you? Right away. I mean, you enjoy <laughs> it for a couple hours, but obviously your mind goes to your next opponent, which was Oklahoma at that point, buddy healed. And it was just like, all right, we got to start game planning. You know, the, the thing about it as coaches, you celebrate for a minute, but you know, your job is it's just, it's one after the other. So uh, you can't celebrate too long, but certainly that night was one to remember. Especially with that Oklahoma team. I mean, that team was incredible. You mentioned healed, but also Ryan Spangler, um, who was running their point? I, I forget. He was, he was a terrific player as well, but I mean, yeah. that Oklahoma team was very good. Very Okay. Good. Mitch, let's pivot now to Sanford. I want to talk to you a little bit about this year's team and give our audience some insight because I don't think you should be a secret, but you may be the best kept secret in America right now. You're certainly one of the hottest teams and it's my job now to promote what Sanford hoops is doing. Let me start with this. Take it back to the preseason, maybe even the first week of the season. Did you think that this team was capable of rattling off something like 17 straight? Well, you know, first of all, all the credit goes to Bucky McMillan, our head coach. He he is just a uh, he's a household name down here in Alabama, but maybe not in the rest of the country. He he is a phenomenal, brilliant, adaptable, um, just 
authentic guy and a great coach. And he's done a marvelous job, not only assembling this team, but getting them ready throughout the summer and the fall to, to have a run like this. Um, if you look back at his career in high school, he's, he's used to making runs like this. I mean, his Mountain Brook teams were ranked number as high as number five in the country. Uh, they were just always on runs like this. So uh, this is no surprise to him or really us. And when we assembled the team in the spring, obviously through the portal, and we had some good high school players signed, as well as some great returners, we thought this could be one of our better teams simply because of the way they shared the basketball. Um, we, one of our core values is unselfishness. And, and so, man, if we get a group, of talented guys that work hard and are unselfish. We think magic can happen in terms of the way they play the game. We're going to always be in attack mode and always, you know, pick up in the full court and, 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 and be the aggressor. But man, when we can add the unselfish part of that to it, uh, man, we, we, you know, these are kind of things we expect is to go on some runs like this. So that selflessness aspect, was that something that had to be instilled practiced in the off season and really ingrained into this team or did you see the personnel and you basically said these guys are selfless as it is maybe let's just improve a little bit do you see what i'm driving at there mitch yeah i mean there's always a um there's always a nuance or a balance between you want talented players to do their thing you know we want to give them freedom we want to have them play their game and do what they do but we got to do it together somehow we've got to do it where the the mindset is it's we and we, we always have to be about team first but that's not without using each other's talents. So um, that's what I think this group's been able to do is use their ability and use their strengths, but also do it for the good of the team. And so some nights you'll have a guy play 10 minutes and not score a whole lot. And other nights he might, that same kid may play 20, 22 and go off for 15 points. And so whenever you have that, a group of, uh, players that have the collective good in mind, I, I think you can make runs like this. And obviously you need talent. We got talented players. We got a talented head coach. And when all that comes together, you, you're going to see 17 in-game win streaks. So selflessness is, is critical. What are some other driving factors for this win streak? I mean, I, I was super impressed, Mitch, with you guys going into Cullowhee and beating Western Carolina, who's, who's having a tremendous year in their own right. But when you look at this specific team and the the game in game out performances, what else are you seeing outside of you know just the high level uh, thought or, or practice of selflessness? Is there anything else like in game detail that you can uh, point to? Yeah, there's a few things. The biggest thing I think with a streak is can you learn through winning? You know, usually your best lessons are law are are, are one or your best lessons come through losing you have to learn a lesson you messed up a block out or you messed up an assignment or hey we didn't share the ball or we wouldn't play hard enough what we're what bucky's really good at is showing the film and saying okay we won the game but if we play like this we're not going to beat you know a better opponent or we're not going to we're not playing at a championship level so it's it's a constant critique but keeping their confidence up during a win streak right you you don't want to kill them over every detail but you also have to say hey guys this is not going to cut it this is not championship level so i think bucky's done a good job of keeping that balance of hey stay confident you're winning you're doing a good job but the process is still there we still have to execute this and we still have to you know share the ball be a high assist team be an attacking team uh, have a good assist turnover ratio all those things
I always find this time of year, Mitch, to be very interesting. And this is when I really look at type of performances. And the, re the reason I do that is because I suppose you could say these are the dog days of the college basketball season. Like this two weeks, once you hit Valentine's day, you can smell March. The weather starts to get a little bit better. You can, you can feel the tournament coming, but this stretch here where I think a lot of people are focused on the NFL, right? The playoffs, this, this stretch is so crucial. How are you? I mean, it sounds like you're, you and the coaching staff are doing their best to keep everyone focused based on these film sessions. But is there, is there that doubt that creeps into your mind of, Hey, we got to keep these guys focused. Yeah, always, you know, you never know what distractions might come for us. It's lately, it's been some injuries and some flu and uh, one of our best players coming into the season hadn't played in, I don't know, eight or nine games, Jermaine Marshall. He's, he's our returning leading scorer and, he's been out. So we've had to juggle some things lineup wise, a lot of plays that we'd run for him. Now we have to throw out and put some new stuff in. So, uh, and, and with success, you always wonder how our players going to handle that, especially if they haven't had it like that um, for a long term. So, you know, it's not only handling adversity and failure, which everybody talks about, it's about handling success the right way as well. And we, as coaches, we've all had some success and we've had win streaks like this. So I think, Again, with Bucky's leadership, it's it's about managing the expectations and just, just daily improvement, playing at a championship level in practice. We still compete in practice. We still go hard in practice. Uh, player development is always something that we're working on. And then it's just trying to find one more point, one or two more points on that floor where we can steal a basket here or there. And uh, so, yeah, we're, we're conscious of it, but Honestly, it's a cliche, but it's just, hey, it's this practice that matters. Like today's practice, Bucky and I talked about last night. What are we going to do to attack Furman? What are we going to do to stop Furman? How can we find a bucket or two here late in the game? You know, it's just the coaches are so good in this league, you got to stay on your toes all the time. Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about the SOCON in general over the past 10, 15 years. It's been so impressive, but uh, I want to get back to this team in this season. Mitch, let me rewind all the way to night one. You got Purdue in West Lafayette. First of all, can you take me behind the scenes of scheduling Purdue? Were you part of that process with Bucky? Uh, and if so, what went into that thought process of scheduling? What some said it could be today the best team in America. Well, first and foremost, uh, we're all trying to find games because our whole staff sitting here calling our contacts and going, hey, can we get a game? Can we get a game? We got to get two or three, you know, money games at our level where we can, you know, fund the program a little bit. But um, usually we couldn't find any. And honestly, we called every SEC team, ACC. We're just, just coming off the good success the last two years. Our style of play is a little different. So people aren't lining up to play the Sanford Bulldogs. And our name recognition isn't extraordinary yet. So it's kind of like, here's a team that could beat me, but they're not – I don't get a whole lot of pop out of that uh, if we beat them. So, so you can see the dilemma in mid-major scheduling. But uh, so Purdue was willing and unfortunately it was it was the first game and they were coming off that loss in the NCAA tournament and our style of play is similar in terms of the pressing and the running and all that. So they were they were ready. I mean, they were ready. There was no doubt about it. Um, but we thought it'd be a good test. It was going to be a great environment. Our guys were excited all fall about playing that game. Uh, we had them right where we wanted them before the jump ball. And then it went downhill from there. 
And if you really, I don't know if you followed it, but we jumped our five, seven, uh, little point guard, Dallas Graziani. I did. Against Zach Eady. And uh, if you watch that game closely, you're going to see that they got the tip. They crossed half court. We trapped them and they threw it in the backcourt that the refs didn't call the backcourt violation. So we actually, in our mind, it was a great tactic, but that was about it. And that, that call didn't go our way and neither did the rest of the game. So, uh, but we learned a lot, honestly, playing the best. You learn a lot. And and we as coaches, you know, I've been in it 32 years, man. I feel like I'm still learning new stuff every single day, watching Matt Painter's team, how they execute, how they play defense. That game was not a great matchup for us because um, we were we, – we, at that point in the year, you just want to do your thing. You want to get better at what you do. And so what we do versus that team, those weren't going to mesh. Um and we didn't shoot the ball well that game, but but honestly, they are extraordinary. I mean, when I say they're put to, they're put together to win it, I really I really believe that. Um, well coached, good veteran players, guys that share the ball, unselfish, tough, smart, all those things. They got it. I was in Indianapolis because I'm an Arizona guy. I was in Indianapolis for their game against Arizona and. Fletcher Lawyer and and Braden Smith were shooting like Steph Curry and Clay Thompson out there, and yeah. I was like, man, this is a good team. But I was still impressed, uh, Mitch, with with you guys as well from that. And and the biggest thing I wanted to take from that were the lessons learned because you you mentioned that, and you also mentioned at this point, it's it's about learning lessons even after wins. You got to be able to handle success well because. But I, I was very curious what you took not only from that Purdue game but also the VCU game. By the way, folks, that's the last time you guys lost. Uh, it's been so long that I, it's just very fascinating to me, Mitch, about what you're learning from those games and what you're learning from these wins um, and and just keeping that edge. I think keeping that edge and, and having that bad taste in your mouth, which I'm assuming you had after Purdue, after VCU, um, and, and it's very interesting to me. Mitch, there's, there's, this kind of dovetails into challenges and opportunities for mid-majors. You guys are having such a marvelous season. And you mentioned the scheduling and how there are some challenges there. But as it pertains to resume, what goes through yours and Bucky McMillan's head when it comes to resume? Like, are you thinking at large? Are you just trying to stack wins and then get, get the uh, SoCon tournament? I mean, if you, if you don't mind being transparent with me, what's the thought process there? Well, let me go back to the Purdue, the lesson learned with Purdue and playing an opponent like that. You know, and we've won some Power Five games since we've been here. We beat Ole Miss, we beat Oregon State, we've had some good wins. Purdue, here's what we learned about playing Purdue. All right, and we say this all the time because we've been up in some games. We've been up by 15 points at halftime. Purdue did not let their foot off the gas. All right. They played to a standard the entire time that helped us realize, hey, we're up in some of these games or we're winning. We still have to play at a standard at a level that's just it's it's habitual. Right. So that's what we learned from them. Um, and then throughout the winning streak, it's 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 really just trying to get ourselves ready for March. So Bucky may say, hey, I know we have a game tomorrow, but we're going to strap it on and play for you know, before Western, we, we got after it. We, we had a tough practice in their gym uh, the day before because the previous day we had to get, get a little bit lighter. And we had played three. That was our third game in five days. So we after the game, we took a, took a little break 
But the day before the game, we had to go hard because all we're trying to do is keep improving. So, yes, that game is meaningful, but what's the most meaningful thing is playing great in February and March. And so with if you're five games into conference play, there's still improvement to be had. So we have to keep getting better. Teams that stay the same or regress, they're not going to be ready in March. And so when that conference tournament hits, that's when we want to be at our best. Is an at-large a possibility? I, I guess if we run the table or play really well or win 30 games, something like that, maybe. But we're not counting on that. We're just we're trying to get better throughout the whole uh, January, February, February conference play. SoCon tournament, by the way, one of my favorite just conference tournaments in general. I always say the conference tournaments are the most underrated thing because obviously it's a primer for the NCAA tournament. I, I enjoy the NCAA tournament more, but there are some amazing conference tournaments and we've seen some incredible moments Furman a couple years ago I think against Chattanooga getting their hearts ripped out and then yep. this this past year they they won it but where, where's that that's in Asheville right Asheville North Carolina that's right yeah all right let's talk a little personnel here now for the Sanford Bulldogs Achora Chor and Ryland Jones they have been tremendous all year and in my estimation are the two key cogs for this team. I'm sure there are other contributors, but I really want to get your thoughts on the development first, let's say, uh, for Achora Achora, who is just performing at a terrific level. Yeah, Achora has been amazing. He uh, He's fallen, as he'll tell you this, I've fallen in love with the game. Uh, last year, he was a backup to a big guy we had, an all-conference player, Logan Dye. A chore comes in, plays 12 to 14 minutes, has some great moments, but you can see he's not quite ready for that prime time situation. And so um, he put in the work all spring, summer, and fall. Neb, one of our player development guys, was with him all the time. Um, a chore, his mindset is improvement, improvement, improvement. And then he's expanded his game. So now, not only we came to us, he was just sort of a low block player, kind of a rim runner, pick and roll guy, but elite quickness with his feet, getting in and out of pick and rolls, can play on the block, can run to the rim, can play out of pick and roll, can play through the elbows as a passer, can play at the top of the key as a shooter and decision maker. He's great on the back of the press in terms of anticipation. So his mindset and his work ethic and his unselfishness, I think is is what uh, what's making him great right now. Extremely coachable, wants to be good, competes every day in practice. So yeah, he's He's, he deserves it. He's earned every minute of it. Rylan Jones, uh, a veteran in the college basketball space, really. I'm curious to know, can you take us behind the curtains of essentially recruiting him and, and getting him via portal? And it's also kind of funny, Mitch, like you, you're, you're a Southeast guy. You went to uh, Montana. Now this is a Utah kid coming down to the Southeast. It's not necessarily apples to apples, oranges to oranges, but take me behind the scenes of uh, the, the, the recruitment of Ryland Jones and then what he's been able to deliver to you. And like I said, I'm a Pac-12 guy. I remember him at Utah and you take one look at this kid. You're probably like, ah, he's undersized. He's pretty small, tough as nails. Yeah. Ryland's been great. And um, Danny Young, one of our assistant coaches had a relationship out there with a couple of coaches, his dad being one of them. His dad was an assistant at Utah and Utah state. He's now a high school coach out in Utah. Bucky got to know the family really well. Uh, Danny and Bucky deserve the credit for recruiting him. He, um, he he was looking at a lot of good schools. I mean, coming out of there, and he had a concussion last year, so it sort of like 
mess with his year. And so he was looking for a new start, grad school somewhere. Let me just go somewhere and, and contribute to a winning program. And I think what he saw in this situation was get out of Utah, find a new start, a fresh start, a style of play that he can flourish in, um, a, a coach that believes in him, which Bucky does and did, and let him do his thing. And so um, great family. His dad's a coach. He's a, he's a high IQ guy with a great skill set. He fits exactly what we're trying to do in terms of the unselfishness part. He can shoot. He can score. He's got a lot of experience. Just a mature kid and a winner. Um, so he's been a been a big piece of this thing. He and a chore. You know, I kind of think Stockton and Malone a little bit when they play out a pick and roll. It's their tough cover because um, both can score and shoot and pass and really smart guys. So for me, what I'm able to do, Mitch, is, is look at their stats and look at the games. And, and essentially, I can see what they do on the court, whether it's watching or or just looking at the stat sheet. What I need your help with is, and it can be, it can, it can go beyond Achora Chor and, and Rylan, but are there pieces of team chemistry that you've picked up uh, or you've seen with this team off court? things that cannot be shown in an ESPN box score. Are there things that you've seen that uh, exhibit leadership qualities or team cohesion off the court that might be contributing to this wonderful season you're having? Yeah, there, there are some things. And, and let me just say some of the, the guys we have are older guys. We've, we've managed to stay old. Several of them are in grad school. A lot of them have a lot of experience playing fourth and fifth year guys. Um, they're mature, they're selfless, they work extremely hard, they play fearlessly, just a lot of core values that Bucky has, they embody. And we were looking for that. Um, you know, you've got a Dallas Graziani who played on a D2 national championship team that didn't lose a game last year. Um, Rowland Jones has been a winner his whole life. Um, Achora Chora played on a, uh, a national caliber team at uh, Chipola Junior College. Jermaine Marshall has been a part of our, our winning culture here. Uh, so we try to get winners. We try to get guys that know what it takes to win, what it looks like, what it feels like. And, and so you've got uh, good students. We've got several grad students. Um, Chandler Leopard, who's one of our best shooters, was at Auburn as a walk-on. Got an engineering degree. He's here playing his fifth year. Um, Nathan Johnson was at UMBC. Graduated in three years. He's working on his master's degree here in finance. Zach Loveday graduated from Baylor in three years. He's working on his his graduate degree. So we got mature kids that understand winning, understand togetherness. They really understand uh, the team aspect of this thing. And when Bucky gets guys like that, he's going to flourish because he 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 can take guys like that and, and mold them into a, a great unit. It's shown on the court for sure. And, and that's why I'm, I'm happy to have your insight, uh, you know, and your perspective as well, because I'm not as close to these kids as, as you clearly are. So, Mitch, I want to talk a little bit about the SOCON, though, in general. And you're contributing to this great run that the SOCON's been having, like I had mentioned earlier in the episode, for the past, let's say, 10 to 15 years. And when we talk SOCON, we're talking Eastern Tennessee State with Steve Forbes. Yeah. We're talking UNCG with Wes Miller. We're talking Chattanooga with Lamont Paris, who, by the way, I've been banging on the Lamont Paris drum this year. I think he's doing a tremendous job with South Carolina. And then Furman, 
Berman from last year beats Virginia. And I, we had Dan Scott, who's the radio voice for Furman. He had some amazing perspective. Um, but and now you guys as well. Samford has been contributing to that. And Mercer, my goodness, Mercer beat Duke. How could we forget right. that? Right. Mitch, what is what are a few things that come to mind when you think SoCon and and, and what do you want the nation to understand about this conference? Well, the cool thing about coaching in the SOCON, number one, the coaches are fantastic. So not only are you competing against really good coaches and good players, but you're learning all the time. You're just, man, I watch a SOCON game and I go, wow, that was really good what they did there. Or watch how they try to uh, uh, attack our press or how they play us and go, wow, that's, that's pretty smart. That's good. So the coaching is fantastic. The players uh, in the league, last year it got rated because all these all these big guys were so good and, and a lot of players left to go power five. So there's incredible players here. Um, we've got several that can play at different levels and I've coached at all the levels. So I've seen everything from the SEC to the Sun Belt, to mid-major to small college. Uh, you know, we've got pros on our team. We've got guys who are going to play in the pros. Um, last year, Jalen Slauson from Furman, Jake Stevens from Chattanooga. These guys are, they could play anywhere uh, so w- what I think people don't realize is when you watch a SoCon game, not only are you seeing st- uh, great styles of play and three-point shooting. I know our, our league usually leads the country in three-point attempts and three-point makes every year. So it's a, it's a fun game to watch. There's shots going in all over the place. Great coaches and players and environments. It's, it's just fun mid-major league. So if you haven't seen it and you haven't watched it closely, you're going to see some creative offense. You're going to see some different styles. You've got athletic teams like Greensboro and Western Carolina, and then you've got other teams that, you know, maybe they're more execution-oriented, like a Citadel or a Furman or Chattanooga. We, we're trying to be all of it. We're trying to be a blend of, you know, fast-paced, athleticism, shooting, sharing the ball, uh, hardcore defensive presence, all those things. So we're trying to – grab all the best things of every team and, and, and be a blend of all of it. It makes sense. So, and, and another thing I was looking at, this says this is pretty not inconsequential, excuse me. But when I look at some of the teams that I mentioned, there's a little bit of a connection between the SOCON and ACC. I talked about Steve Forbes. He's now at, at wake uh, UNCG West Miller. He played at Carolina, right? Furman beat Virginia. I don't know. There's some, I feel like a, a detective right now, just piecing the most useless things together, but uh, well, it's yeah, interesting. You could, you could argue we're a little bit of a small version of that because these are good high academic schools in the ACC, same as the SOCON. you got good schools all over the place. So it's, uh, you got, you got true student athletes running around here. It's, uh, it's fun. And, the, and again, yeah, those coaches that you mentioned that have moved on, they're going to do great uh, as long as they can keep getting the players. I mean, it, you know, in today's day and age, the coaching is one thing, but you got to you got to get dudes, you got to get players, and um, and we've got some. I'm telling you, AJ State McCray for us, fantastic. Jaden Campbell, two o- older guys. Uh, AJ graduated in three and in three and a half years from here. He's working on his masters now. Again, when you get older guys and you get guys that are bought in and and been around, uh, you can do some unique things. But it, it is cool to see some of the some of the different coaches and what they're doing at the different levels. And, and Bucky is certainly capable of coaching at any level. He was a high school coach for a long time, which is an amazing story. Uh, but me having been around 
coaches in the SEC and the SOCON and the Sun Belt and Division Three, wherever it is, he's as good as any of them. I want to focus a little bit on Furman from last year. Did that give you any inspiration for this season coming in? Because folks, I feel like, forget that you won the regular season championship as well, right, last year. Right. And so you see what Furman's able to do because they punched their AQ ticket. But did that impact, like when you were watching the tournament, which I assume you guys were doing, uh, did that impact you in terms of, hey, we can if, if we put together a good season, get in the dance, these things are possible. Did that impact you at all? Absolutely. Yeah. When you're knocking heads with Furman every year and you, you know, we were a game ahead going into the last game of the season and Furman came in here and won. They, they shot the ball, played incredibly well. I think they hit 15 threes and they were just on fire. We couldn't do anything with them. We thought, OK, if they can play like that, uh, they're going to make a run. And we thought we would, too. We were a little banged up toward the end of the year. We had two of our starters who could barely practice and barely play. But um, had, had we been at full speed and been able to get through Chattanooga and that early going, that would have been a great matchup there at the end uh, to see who would go. But they were healthier and they were a little stronger there at the end and made a, made a great run. Uh, beating Virginia like they did, that was, it was awesome. But, yeah, it, it made us realize, hey, we can play with any of these teams. Um, if we're healthy and we're clicking and playing it at the right way and, and peaking in February and March, certainly we can all make a run like that. Absolutely. And SoCon teams, I think, have been dangerous. People don't want to play them when they come out of this league because they know they've been through the fire. Man, I'm telling you those teams and names that we talked about, ask Duke. Right? Yep. Ask ask Illinois that barely scraped by that Chattanooga team from a few years ago. No, they do not want to play you guys. That's what, right. what I think people forget, Mitch, is when they look at brackets and they make these predictions, I think people forget like you're playing, and not just the SoCon, but you're playing champions of this league. You're not getting a third, fourth, a team that finished third or fourth in that conference. You are playing the champions of this league. So it, it ain't a cakewalk. It's not. It's not at all. Everybody, we, we play each other twice, and then we go through the conference tournament, and we've all had to play guarantee games, and we played against good opponents. You know, a lot of times it's hard to get smaller opponents in the non-league you get you're playing good mid-major teams usually and we played belmont who's a perennially you know a, a tournament team louisiana um so there's not only is it the league play but your non-conference teams are tough too and most of our teams have winning records coming out of the non-conference play which is pretty rare for uh mid-major teams i think all, all i think all of them had other than maybe bmi had winning records going into league play that's right. So yeah, we all been tested. It's uh, if you can come out of this league with a with a bid, you're you're gonna make some noise in the tournament. Hey, happy for VMI as well. Uh, I, I wouldn't expect you to say anything on that, but I'm happy for VMI for getting that win. I think absolutely uh, the the court storm that was pretty neat. But uh, let's go back to a little geography here, Mitch. So we've established that you're a Southeast guy, and for me at least, the Southeast is football country with the exception of maybe Kentucky, which is in the SEC, and you can debate on where that lands geographically. But Alabama specifically, I think a lot of folks would say is football country. But I'm over here in the corner trying to set off some flares and let the folks know that Alabama is also a basketball state. You see what Auburn's been doing. They've been to a Final Four. Nate Oates had a team last year at Bama that was a number one overall, or not overall, but a number one seed. You guys are playing incredibly well on uh, and one of the hottest teams in the country. Mitch, can you just speak a little bit to 
the success that the state of Alabama is having and how you're contributing to it in what I think many would consider a football state. Well, don't get it twisted. We're a basketball state that happens to play football down here. Um, but no, you're right. Alabama, Auburn, Samford, UAB. UAB was in the NIT finals last year. Great call. Um, Troy, I think, won 20 games last year. So you've got some very, very good coaches in a state that doesn't produce more than maybe eight or 10 Division One players every year. So um, you got to go grab them from different places. You obviously want some Alabama kids. But, uh, yeah, you, you can't minimize the impact that Bruce Pearl and Nate Oates have had on the state in terms of basketball. I mean, when those games, the, it's electric and, and the style of play. All of us play fast. All of us press in some way. All of us, uh, you know, play an exciting brand of basketball. We, we're a little biased. We think ours is the most exciting. I mean, we're number two in the nation in scoring right now, right behind Kentucky. We are number one last week. Um, high assists, just it's it. I don't know what it is. It's just you got good coaches coaching good players, and um, people love basketball this time of year. Of course, once football's over, they really get into it. But uh, yeah, for there's always been some good players and good teams that have come out of here. And Auburn was in the final four a few years ago. Nate Oates has done a great job at Alabama, and and all of us watch each other, and we, we, you know, we're all students of the game, so we study, but uh. Yeah, everybody puts their own imprint on it, and, and you, you're seeing the fruits of that. Um, basketball here traditionally has been has taken a backseat to football, but I think what you're seeing now is when January, February, March hit, it is everybody's all in on hoops. The names are are so interesting and fun to watch, and that's why I'm glad and I'm very thankful that you're on this platform because we talked about Achora Chor and Rylan Jones, and there are plenty of other names that I'm sure we will be getting familiar with. But it, like I said, you, you look at a team like Auburn, you got the head honcho and Bruce Pearl and then UAB Jelly Walker, who's fun. And then, and then Alabama had some incredible talent as well. The talent, the names, the coaches, it's, it's, it's fun. And, you know, I appreciate a fun brand of basketball. I'm sure coaches that don't necessarily play your style, but still get results. Don't care about what I think, but thank you Mitch, for playing an appeasing brand. <laughs> it is fun. It's I tell you, when you try to get up and down, and well, why would you want to go to a basketball game and watch people walk the ball up the floor, uh, score 40 points, and just sit there and go, okay, man, like down here, we don't have a shot clock in high school, so it's almost just so painful to watch. Georgia's got one. So you watch a high school game in Georgia, and you go, okay, that's a little more applicable. Uh, but, yeah, the style of play thing is it goes hand in hand. It should go hand in hand with winning. You do what you can to win. But boy, if you can play it faster, I mean, we scored 134 against BMI the other night. Unfortunately, they scored 96, but I would rather win 134 to 96 than, you know, 89 to 54, right? Like, yeah. so if, if you can win playing that style, which Bucky always has, uh, do it. You know, let, let's do it. Let's, let's play and let's let the players enjoy this thing. Think about it. The game is supposed to be fun. It's a game. It's, everybody's happier when everybody's scoring and sharing the ball. Uh, you got to put in the work and, and attack and play good defense, but it's definitely more fun when everybody's scoring. Yeah. And, and guess what? When you score, if you ever played the game, you're a little more hyped up to play defense after <laughs> you score than you are if you, if you don't. And so uh, we're trying to get that ball to go in the basket so we can get, get in that press and get after you a little bit. No, you nailed it. 
Mitch, it's an election year. So you and I, we should throw our name on the ballot. We'll run on the platform of implementing uh, uh, shot clocks in all high schools. And you have to play a fun brand of hoops. What do you say? Absolutely. I'll tell you where I learned that. I did a, uh, I've been all over the world with basketball, maybe eight or 10 countries, did a camp in uh, Latvia one year. And uh, we're playing in this little gym. Uh, I don't know, it's 16, 15 year olds uh, that were on a little team. They were going to play against a men's team that night. So they said, Hey, Mitch, you know, you've done some drills with our guys. Why don't you sit on the bench for this game? I said, okay. And I, I did not expect to see the shot clock. And at 15 years old at 12, you know, 12 to 15 years old, they've got a shot clock at 24 seconds. So the players have to come down and make really fast decisions, uh, run right into offense. There's no set it up. It's just you're running right into it. You're making quick decisions on the fly. And so it got me thinking, that's the way the game should be played. At an early age, come down, quick pick and roll, quick decision, get a piece of the paint, whip it out to somebody else. And now you've got a fun brand of basketball. And guess what? The players develop because they have to make fast decisions and they got more possessions in the game and more things going on. And so it got me thinking that's really the way the game should be played. Yeah. So I, I joke about this, but you saw, saw Bucky McMillan as a kid playing. You saw Wes Flanagan as a kid playing. Did, did you, was, were you watching Chris Tapps Porzingis when you were over there in uh, Latvia? <laughs> no, he wasn't in that camp. All right. But, uh, he was probably already playing for money at that age. Yeah. No, this, so, so it was, it was truly unique though, to see how they were already doing that. They were already playing like that. And I'd never seen 15 year olds play with that kind of pace and that kind of awareness and know the shot clock. No, it's ticking down. All right. doesn't mean we have to throw something at the goal. Let's keep, we can keep going until the last second. And uh, it, it had an impact on me. So ever since, as an offensive coach, I've always thought, man, I would love to play like the Europeans play. I would love to play fast like that. Play defense like the Americans and play offense like the Europeans. That'd be the great mix. Try and meld it. That's right. Uh, I got a couple more questions for you, Mitch, before I, I let you go. And we'll have a little fun here in just a second. But your your background is so vast and you hit on it a little bit. You've been everywhere geographically and also at different levels. Uh, talk to me a little bit about the dichotomy and the challenges and opportunities, let's say the pros and cons of, let's say your, your role at Texas A&M in a major, major conference versus where you are right now at Samford, right? The pros and cons of both. And we, we already talked about scheduling. We talked about resume building, right? At large versus the, the SOCON tournament or conference tournaments. But when you look at where you were at TAMU and where you are now, what are some things that, that differ for the better or worse? Yeah. Um, so I've done a little bit of everything at all levels, whether it's scheduling, whether it's washing the clothes, it's being an, uh, an analyst, being a recruiter, been a head coach for eight years. So I think where I groove into it is I love the coaching aspect, the game planning, practice planning, player development, recruiting, all those things are fun for me. And, um, it's fulfilling to build a relationships with players and staff and, and see things come together where uh, with, with guys that don't have egos and guys that just want to win and, and have fun doing it. That's, that's the fun part for me. Um, I heard Jay Billis say this one time when, when, when thinking career and thinking, all right, where do you fit? Do you want to coach or do you want to be a famous coach? 
And so that stuck with me. And I'm not so caught up in being a famous coach as I am like teaching and coaching the game and developing the relationships with people around the program. That's more fun. So for me, levels, it's basketball. It doesn't matter. Sometimes you get paid more than other levels. But um, when it's all said and done, I think the fun part is in the day-to-day relationships with the people around the program and then trying to solve problems from a, a schematic standpoint. Okay, so um, how are we going to beat Furman? How are we going to deal with their offense, which is very good? How are we going to counter this? How are we going to find a point here, there? Um, that's the the art and science of of coaching, right? It's it's figuring out how to solve these problems and then seeing your players get better. Uh, that is so fun for me to see the light come on for an a chore, a chore, or see big guys develop or see guards come into their own and have fun playing the game. Um, we talk about this in recruiting a lot. It's like, Hey, we, we want to win and we need you to help us win, but we also want to see you flourish and see you personally do really well. That's fun for us. That's fulfilling for us. So when we have all that going on, you can see why it's so fun. It's uh, it's productivity and joy and fun all mixed into one and, uh, whatever role I'm in, that's, that's what I've, I've tried to do is, is be really productive, but have as much fun as we can have. Special to watch, Mitch. This team will make the tournament for the first time since 2000. You, you talk about streaks, which is what you guys are on, uh, but you haven't made the tournament. The program hasn't made a tournament since 2000. So do me a little fill in the blank exercise for me, Mitch. This team will make the tournament for the first time since 2000. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, 2000, Jimmy Tillett was the coach here. Fantastic basketball mind. They just inducted him in the Hall of Fame here at Sanford. So that was kind of a cool thing to see. And I remember those teams. I was coaching in Birmingham at the time. Um, it's been a dry spell for a while. I'm hoping we can put it together at the right time this year to to make that run. A lot of things have to happen. we got to stay healthy. we got to keep playing well. But, um, yeah, I mean – it's always the goal to play in postseason. It's always the goal to make the NCAA tournament. It's, it's our goal immediately to win the next game, but it's also to try to win the regular season. And so, I don't know. We're, we're, we're always thinking what's the next best thing we can do. You mix in recruiting with all that. and You mix in um, just being at our best day-to-day and impacting our community. And you got a lot of things going on, a lot of moving parts. But certainly making that NCAA tournament would be a, a icing on the cake. Mitch, I know you're a very busy man. I'm going to get you out of here on a couple quick hitters. Let's have a little fun. Okay. Who coined Buckyball? I think I think that came that came from Mountain Brook when he was uh, they were playing the same way, shooting threes, pressing, picking up. His camps start growing, kids start getting getting a hold of it. But if 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 you go back and watch his teams at Mountain Brook, which is a school right here five minutes from from Sanford, they were packing out the BJCC. Uh, which is our big arena downtown for these state tournaments. And there'd be neon everywhere. And these shirts, buckyball shirts would start appearing. And so it's a brand, it's a style of play. It's fun. Uh, the kids embrace it. It's, it's just a great way to think, all right, this is a brand of basketball that people love to watch. And so Bucky's name's on it and it's really all him. So we're, we're excited to be a part of it. Man, in this day and age, when people just love merch, 
right? I'm I'm hoping I I might need to get my paws on some buckyball t-shirts or, or whatever it is. Like I'm I'm there in you your guys' corner. I love it. Um, you've crossed paths with so many people and you've shared some very interesting stories. I'm gonna talk real quick about two guys at Texas A&M. Uh, first of all, Billy Kennedy. You guys went to the same high school. We did. Yeah. Did you cross oh, paths that's there? Deep, that's some deep research there. Um, no, not he was five or six years older than I was. And then, um, but he got into coaching right away and, uh, he was in coaching a little bit of AAU and different things in the city. So we got to know each other when I was in high school and then stayed in touch for a long time, good family friends. And then we connected at Texas A&M, which was an incredible five years that I spent with him. He's taken several teams to the NCAA tournament, two sweet 16s at Texas A&M, very rated coach, but a program builder and a wonderful person. Just a great guy all the way around. Did you guys know you went to high school together? Or did after a few meetings where you're like, oh, you went, you went here too? Yeah, we, we knew we went to the same high school. We, we, we got to know each other, right? I was a senior in high school and he was kind of getting into coaching. So we, we started developing a relationship at that point. Another staff member that was there at Texas A&M alongside you was Amir Abdur-Rahim. Yeah. And he is doing tremendous work. Last year, resurrecting, if I can be brutally honest, a terrible Kennesaw State program to right. the NCAA tournament and almost beating Xavier, which is insane. Uh, yeah. And now he's doing yeoman's work at South Florida, who just beat Memphis. Incredible comeback. Talk a little bit about Amir Abdurrahim, your relationship with him, and how much pride you have uh, yeah. for, for him. It is great to see Amir do what he's doing. We played them my second year here. We won a late, a close game, but I sent out a tweet or said something like, hey, get ready. Amir's about to turn this thing around at Kennesaw. And I knew he would. He's an everyday guy. Even admits some horrible losing streaks when he first got the job. He was just every day grinding, every day. I'd talk to him. And he, I just knew he would turn it at some point. If you get the right players and the right mix, he was going to do it. Uh, he was a big part of our success at AM. He had been with Billy Kennedy at different stops. And so he, I would say this about Amir and Billy, they're meticulous in terms of they're not going to panic when things don't go right. It's just a grind, a daily improvement. And so what you're, what you're seeing there is just Amir doing his thing. And, and a little earlier success probably than anybody thought there at South Florida because that program wasn't in great shape when he took it, but a couple of good players came over with him. He's got a good staff. He does a great job. He's a family guy. He's a grinder. And so he deserves every ounce of success he's having. Yeah. That's, that's, those are some great words. So when I saw that, I said, dang, this, this A&M coaching staff is pretty stacked. These guys are doing some great work, including yourself. Yeah. Well, Kyle Keller was on that staff. He's now at Stephen F. Austin doing a great job. Uh, Rick Stansberry was on that staff. Um, so we had some, we had some good coaches there and, and really Billy was the architect of all of it. He, he was awesome. Glenn Cyprian is a longtime coach coaching the final four at Oklahoma state. Uh, yeah, I was around some, some great guys that I learned a lot from. Well, like I said, you've contributed to that as well, Mitch. I mean, you're doing an amazing job, but, uh, curious to know what was it like coaching Alex Caruso and Daniel house? Like did, I have so many questions, but I know we're limited on time. Like, did you know that these guys would excel 
in the NBA. Uh, did you did you see any of that? What were they like then? Just take us through coaching those two guys. Daniel House I saw in high school, and he he was a big-time high school player right there. So we kind of thought, all right, he, he's got a chance. Alex Caruso, no one would have predicted what he's doing. No chance. He he comes in the first summer, 6'4", 170, soaking wet, and he's, he's playing these one-on-one. Billy would put these guys through one-on-one drills, and he is just getting absolutely murdered. I mean, everybody's just taking him to the rack and he couldn't guard anybody. And and and, and you're just going, ah, I don't know. Do we make the right decision? He was a local kid and all that. But, you know, he was a good player. But we just thought early on, ah, this is going to be tough. But then, and this is this is what I, we always say, he started playing five on five. All right. One on one, not doing great. Five on five, now you see it. And you see the impact he makes in different ways with his passing and his awareness and his steals. And he's the guy that everybody picks first because they want him on their team because he's going to pass him the ball. And as he grew physically and maturity wise and mentally and fell in love with the game, all of a sudden, okay, this is the guy you want on your team. And I would tell friends in the NBA, like he's your, he's your come off the bench guard that everybody's going to want to play with. Trust me on that. Uh, he broke some steel and assist records at AM and uh, just the proofs were what he's doing. I mean, he's fantastic, uh, but no one would have saw that. Daniel House, on the other hand, had the talent from day one. And um, when things got tough, he could just make a shot. He just shoot it from 25 feet, make it, and could get downhill and play great and big games. And so two different approaches, but yeah, you, you talk about two talented players. There were other talented players on that team yes. as well. Um, Jalen Jones had a stint in the NBA in the G League. Yep. Um, you got Tyler Davis and DJ Hogue and Admon Gilder, and all these guys were very, very good players. Um, so that was a special group. But Alex and Daniel were, were definitely guys that you thought, all right, uh, they're going to have some good careers in the NBA. And those two guys have played at the highest level. Caruso, obviously a champion. House has been to a Western Conference Finals, I think, with the Rockets when he was there. And I live in Chicago now. So the folks love Alex Caruso here, man. They they love him. He is. Yeah. Uh, my last question before I get you on out of here. Take us through the uh, reaction when you first approached Dallas Graziani, which you've referenced. Take us through his reaction when you said you will be tipping off against Zach Eady. <laughs> well, honestly, that was Bucky is a master coach, but he's also a master promoter. So we were sitting in the office. We should have filmed this because we're sitting in the office and Bucky goes, hey, guys, I got an idea here. And we're looking at each other like, OK, what are we going to do here? He says, how about we get Dallas to do the jump ball against Zach Eady? And the older guys on the staff are like, ah, I don't know, man. And the younger guys are, yeah, that's a great idea. And uh, Bucky just sort of said, yeah, I think that's what we're going to do. And he starts promoting it. And we got some skits and some things that we did on social media that Bucky did. And trying to make Dallas grow in the next week, you know, see if we can put an inch or two on it. It was hilarious. And so what it did is it just, it drummed up some interest in the game, honestly. And it's all in good fun. I mean, it was, it was kind of like, all right, let's, let's make this thing as, as popular as we can and in the South, you've got to promote basketball. It just doesn't promote itself. You've got to do things that are exciting and fun and different. And uh, Bucky's just fantastic at all that. So, so yep, Dallas, you're jumping ball. And uh, you see some of the pictures and the videos of that. It's just wild. You're just seeing a giant. It's like David and Goliath out there, you know? So 
that was fun. That was a good idea. And it didn't turn out so well on the court, but uh, it definitely got some clicks. And so we were, we were off and running with college basketball season 2023. That was amazing. Mitch, let me tell you though, in all seriousness, the level at which you're playing and this win streak has been so great. And I say that because I'm doing some research and I was like, wait a minute, because I'm so wrapped up in this winning streak. I'm, I'm saying to myself, wait a minute, didn't what didn't something happen game one with Sanford and Purdue? Like, I'm pretty sure that was Sanford. And then I looked it up and sure enough. So the point that I'm making is, yeah, you got to drum up the interest night one. But what you've done since then is the real story of this team that, you know, Dallas Graziani taking the jump ball is secondary, maybe even tertiary. So you guys are doing amazing. I appreciate that. It's it's uh, it's a collective effort, and you, you've got good players and good coaches and an administration that believes in us. So it's 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 really been fun. The students here have been fantastic. Uh, Bucky's just promoted it. He's got a group made with a couple thousand students on it, so he's interacting with them nonstop. Our players are interacting with the students. It's really what college basketball should be about. A uh, bunch of student athletes that are that are in there with their classmates and just having a blast at the games. This has been an absolute blast. Speaking of, I'm going to get you out of here on this. This is what I ask all of my guests at the end of each episode and interview. It's called Bring Them Up on Stage, Mitch. Is there anyone that you can reference or that you think would be a good fit or have a good time joining me on this podcast and sharing some stories as you were so kind to do? Yeah, some of the guys I worked with at AM would be good. Kyle Keller is, is a great coach. He's funny. He's he's he loves hoops. Amir, who who we mentioned earlier, those would be some good guys to jump on board with. Um yeah, there's several friends all around the college basketball landscape. Um Lenny Acuff's a good friend of mine at Lipscomb. Just, you know, I'm a small college coach at heart, uh, been been at the higher levels, but also love seeing you know, guys that have grind and, and been at different levels do it, uh, tell stories and just just enjoying the game. And that's what I appreciate about you guys and what y'all are doing. Just bringing the light, uh, whether it's assistants or different guys and podcasts. Talking ball is always fun this time of the year. So uh, certainly happy to do it and happy to recommend anybody uh, for this. This was fun. Very much appreciate it, Mitch. And and you're right. I mean, everyone's got a story. You've crossed paths with so many folks. You've You've been on the sidelines for winning basketball. So I can't thank you enough for jumping on. Uh, I might reach out to you to connect me with uh, with some of the folks that you named and be a pest as I have been the past week trying to get yeah. you on here. But Mitch Cole, this was tremendous. Thank you so much. Best of luck moving forward. Let's keep this win streak rolling, baby. Okay? Absolutely. Let's keep it going. Appreciate you, uh, appreciate you having me on. Thanks, Mitch. Take care. Okay. want to thank Mitch one more time for jumping on and sharing his story and taking us through his trajectory. It was a lot of fun. I'm so excited for Sanford. I'm so excited for these mid-majors that are playing so incredibly well. And I'm just thrilled for the players uh, of Sanford and the community. And, and we talked a chore, a chore. We talked Ryland Jones, of course. But this is a true team effort. You can see it happening there in the SoCon. And... I think the biggest key for them is to just stay sharp. I wouldn't expect them to be perfect heading into the SoCon tournament. If they are, great. But once you get there, then you gotta you gotta run the table. And it wouldn't put put it past. I wouldn't put it past Bucky Bucky's Bucky Ball man. I just love saying that. Wouldn't put it past Bucky's guys for doing that. 
Um, but this was a lot of fun and it shed a lot of light into what's clicking and what's going right for Samford. So Mitch Cole, thank you so much for jumping on. I'm going to get out of here on some quick segments. We'll do not so mid. Okay. Not so mid. I'm going to say with Seattle. So we talk about mid majors and winning streaks. GCU was on one of those crazy winning streaks. They had to go to Seattle and they got upended. Hat tip to Seattle and the huge muscular bird. That's like the blow up bird that's in the corner of their gym. If you haven't seen this on camera, you you have to take a look at it. It's very it's it's very weird, and it's very off putting. But it clearly helped Seattle. They take down GCU. What a great win! Huge upset. My easy layup, Blake Hinson at Duke. And UCF doing the horns down. That all happened this past week. I want to focus in on Blake Henson. Uh, I love that. That's what you do. That's what we need. We need real rivalry beef. We need real trash talk. Blake Henson didn't go into the crowd. Blake Henson didn't, didn't start a fight. Okay. He just got up on there and trash talked him. And I love that. We need more of that. And if Duke goes into pit, I don't know what their schedule is, but if they go into pit, I can't, I can't remember if they actually already went there and they do that and they get some sort of retribution or if they, if they play each other in the ACC tournament and they get retribution on pit, Duke should be allowed to do damn near whatever they want. Okay. Mock them, do whatever. I love it. This is what we need. This is the college basketball I grew up on. Not lame technical fouls for hooking holds and hanging onto the rim too much. Like that's where we are right now. So I want to thank Blake Henson for really getting me back in touch with my roots and providing a bit of a nostalgia. I loved it. And you know what? Good for Pitt. Despite the fact that Duke, and I wouldn't read too much in this Duke loss, but despite the fact that Duke was roachless, all right, and Mark Mitchell-less, it was a good win for Pitt, and I wouldn't read too much of it into it if I was Duke. But thank you, Blake Henson. A lot of fun. My lane violation. Mick. Mick, 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 Mick. Mick Cronin and his crying. After the Arizona game, he took it up with the press basically saying that they got jobbed by the refs. Now, as an Arizona fan, I can agree with Mick that the whistle was lopsided in the second half. Arizona got to the line very often. They got UCLA got whistled for more fouls. Someone would say, well, defend without fouling or play as aggressive as Arizona. There, there are times and places for that. I don't think this is one of them. Arizona got a nice whistle. I'm an adult. I'm mature enough to say that, but they took advantage of it. You kept fouling Umar Balo, who's not a good free throw shooter. And what did he do? He just knocked him down in your face. So credit to Umar Balo for that. But Mick Cronin, man, like even if all of that is true, even if even if all of that is true, Mick Cronin, after every single loss, it seems like he's blaming the refs. So every single night, except for maybe the Utah night where he got blown out by 46, every single time it's close, it's the ref's fault. And I know what UCLA fans are saying. UCLA fans are going to be saying, no, 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 this is Mick. This is Mick supporting his team and saying that you played well enough to win, but it was the ref's fault. And so I'm in your corner. Fine. Continue to delude yourself. Go for it. I don't care. But 
it's so obnoxious. And his crybaby whining is so annoying. And the way he treats the media is complete BS, especially the Tucson local media. All, uh, you know, I think it was Justin Spears. Justin Spears asked him what it's like playing in McHale Center as a visitor. He was, oh, you got to ask Tommy. You got to ask Tommy Lloyd. He's here every single day. All right, Mick. What are you doing? Absolute crybaby. By the way, your team stinks. All right. You are terrible this year. You are in no position to go whine. So he's blamed his own players, by the way. Let's not forget about that. He's blamed the refs. And now he's pissed off at local media guys. All right. And then, I don't know. There was some footage of fans, you know, fans and, and the UCLA bench as they were exiting into the locker room after the game. There might have been some conflict there. And so Justin Spears, local reporter in Tucson, asked Mick about that. He said, nothing, nothing happened. And that's okay. But then he said, I wouldn't expect anything less from you. I don't think he's he's had an he's had a negative interaction with Justin Spears. And Justin Spears is a great guy. So Mick Cronin, man, your crybaby BS is getting so out of hand and so nauseating. Just because you stink this year doesn't mean you can just take it out on people, but this is a petulant child. And so I, I hate it. I hate it, hate it, hate it when him and the Bobby Hurleys, even the Danny Hurleys, who has a national championship, okay, when these coaches just melt down and they tell their kids to keep composure, you're not even keeping composure. They tell their kids to take about accountability and ownership. How hypocritical do you sound when you're saying this is the ref's fault? And you just give BS answers to the press because you're pissed off. Grow up, dude. Please grow up. So, Mick Cronin, huge lane violations. God, I got a little riled up there. Last time UCLA traveled to McHale. Oh, also, by the way, Mick Cronin, you haven't beat Tommy Lloyd. I think you've only beat him once. All right. Focus on that, my man. You're one in four against Tommy Lloyd. want to thank Mitch Cole again for jumping onto the program. That was a ton of fun. Had a blast with him um, and wishing Samford all the best moving forward. Cannot wait to see how this season progresses. Thank you as always for listening. We will catch you next time here on theater and college hoops.